All right, so uh, I'll just give a little intro just in case. So I'm super excited because uh, we're going to talk process relations about how we feel about the world. Well, sort of. <laughs> no, nope, finally uh, listen to our conversation with Matt Masigal, me and John, uh, and it's going to inform me about the topology of process relations. And I'm looking forward. Uh, right, it's, not, it's something that I struggled with for a long time, and I've been reading process relational philosophy in many disguises from the originals to the popularizers. And this year I set it as my task because I'm working on another thing that has to do with metaphysics. And as I started to write about it, I'm like, was drawing on process relational philosophy. And I was asking kind of the same questions that John was like, what? Like, what's going on, you know? Okay. Um, and so um, I just thought I would share how far I've come um, I'm not sure all process philosophers would agree with me um, because I'm trying to uh, um, get inside the head of Hartshorn, mostly comes from Hartshorn um, as an interlocutor for Whitehead. Um, but um, yeah. And so you, we'll you know I'm ignorant about process philosophy. Yeah, yeah. But you know, they have like, there's this, it's this question like, um, we have an intuition, for example, like my cells are internally related to me. That's what something right. a process philosopher would say. Sure. But then I would not, but my gut biome, the bacteria, is inside me. Okay. Now, we why we have an intuitive hit of why one is inside me, but my cells are internally related to me. But the question is, can we get real clarity and precision? around what internal relations are in process philosophy. There okay. happens to be four different types and different meanings. Okay. Um, and when you read, you'll hear Hartshorn or uh, use it one way, and then you'll read, you see a, you know, a process theologian use it another way, and then you'll see, and you always get the sense that there's something sliding context. Remember how last time I said to you that part of this is like the seed that the tree comes from. Yep. It's not the same as the seed that the tree makes. Yep. Their, their relations are completely different. Mm -hmm. But we have this one word, right? Is the seed the whole other part? And this is kind of the slippery sliding slope that the word internal relations has come to uh, function in process philosophy. As far as I can see, if somebody okay. knows exactly where this is spelled out mm. or spelled out better, I'd be happy to uh, look at that. So, um, just so, just so that I'm clear, is there is it part of the vocabulary of process relations to talk about internal and external relations? Yes. Is that part okay. of it? So okay. we'll start with. Um, there's the general categories, there's internal and external relations. Okay. Um, now, what I'm about to say is a is attempt to clarify what it is, and a true Whiteheadian will go on and on and on and subtly complexify what I'm going to say, which is fine, uh -huh. but we want to get like to the first kind of Cheers. wrap up, uh -huh. okay? Okay. So just like your every system, you know, once you get into the weeds, there's nuances and subtleties. Okay, so there's internal and external relations. Now, what first we have to understand is relations are not relationships. Mm -hmm. So a relationship is something that connects one node to the other, okay. right? And relations are um, something 
different. We won't define it at first because that'll get until we feel some of this okay. territory. We won't define. But what it's it's important to know that they're not relationships. Okay. The other thing is to know is that all the internal and re- external relationship relations are mutually code mutually interdependent. Right. Okay. It's like, um, but. They are asymmetrically mutually dependent. What does this mean? Hmm. So in um, in uh, most Western philosophy and in Buddhist scholastics, you have these things like the one and the many, okay. or emptiness and form, or subject yeah. and object. So um, what process f- relational philosophy does is shows that they're not just two sides of the same coin. Okay. They're not equivalent. Uh-huh. That one is related to the other in a different way than the other is related to one. Okay. And so there's always a profound asymmetry. Uh-huh. Okay. So the one is internally related to the many in process okay. relations. Now that that's, we just, just, point that there it's Uh that's kind of too hard to understand right now but internal and external relations have this relationship of asymmetry it's similar to what ian mcgilchrist says the right brain and the left brain they're Uh not just two two different partners because the right brain can see the left brain Uh it can see itself and it can see the left brain yep whereas the left brain just sees itself as Right. Against the right brain, all right. So yep. that would be very similar to um, okay, um, similar to that. Okay, okay. So the right brain, left brain are mm-hmm. mutually interdependent, but they're asymmetrically mutually independent. Okay. Process relations. The whole world is like this. Okay. After the singularity, because if the singularity was symmetrical, mm-hmm. then there has the the fundamental thing about existence has to be the profound asymmetry of reality okay so this is all the way through okay okay and the most fundamental way well it's not the most fundamental way but internal and external relations have this asymmetry okay so let me give you a story um actually can i just pause there for a second okay so let's just do a quick uh simplistic you talk lens here okay So the simplistic you talk lens is I, I'm burrowing through the basic descriptive metaphysical architecture of natural science and arriving at the concept of behavior as the epistemic mapper, where behavior is object, field, and relation across time right, or change. Um, so the basic structure of which is going to then, I think, map on to the, the idea of internal external asymmetrical relation mm-hmm. okay yeah. so uh, i'll just place that out there and see that's how i as a non-whiteheadian philosopher but the founder of you talk and and what you talk says about the concept of behavior as this epistemic and then ontological uh, profound it's, it's, entity and of course behavior and process are deeply related so i'll just i'll pause there no, and exactly and you're gonna find see i know i can only do my piece and i know you're gonna go oh and then See all this stuff in your piece, because with the notion of asymmetrical internal and external relations, 
what we're trying to do is train our minds not to think of subject object uh-huh. subject because we think subject object co-rise one is just the other side of the other the equivalent and so it's important i mean certainly they will map subject as internal relations and object as external relations but by then we're back into classical newtonian philosophy yep, i'm with you okay so we can then extrapolate to that but we want to train our minds not to go there really fast so we have these terms right okay. I, I i i think my system basically does that and in fact i think i'm going to be resonant with your notions about complex potentials. I don't know. We'll get there, but anyway, let's just go. Um, I yeah, think yeah. Okay. I mean, any good decent metaphysics will map onto a lot of work that other people are doing because it's just bones. Mm-hmm. It's not. It doesn't have a lot of particulars. Okay. Lovely. So the first and easiest way to understand internal relations is the everyday ordinary experience. Okay. okay. So we are having an external interaction. Mm-hmm. It has, you know, it's mediated by technology and all this, but mostly our it's our speech acts that we're doing, right? Yep. This isn't it. But in the process, part of your subjectivity is ingressing into my subjectivity. Totally. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that is you that is one definition of internal relations that in real time with co-temporaries, mm-hmm. people in the same time space as you, um, are externally reacting, interacting, but by necessity, that external interaction is ingressing as internal relations in the self. Okay. This has all kinds of implications for morality. So, for example, if I'm at war with you, I'm at war with myself because being in external interaction with you, battle actually ingresses the conflict into myself, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Okay. So that's the, that's one notion of internal relations. Okay. So these are important for when you think of social systems, because a shared imaginary is ingressed into all the participants, let's say. Okay. Okay. All right. Now the second, um, that's the, that's the, the more ordinary one. Now, the second uh, notion of uh, internal relations actually is your you talk stack. Okay. And that is there are antecedents, uh-huh. like matter is antecedent to life. Right. And we use the word dense, D E N T S, because uh, that was not really a good example. But there, we use the word D-E-N-T-S, which means those historical priors that are no longer are around, as opposed to D-A-N-T-S, like my children are my descendants. Okay. They're both antecedent uh-huh. and descendants. We'll okay. talk about that later. But the, it's like the Aborigines or the indigenous people. They would never call their grandmothers their ancestors. Their ancestors are antecedents. They're no okay. longer around. They're like I the land you. and stuff. Okay. okay. So, oh, hold one second. This is important. But country living. No Everybody's got to get their trucks fixed before the 10 feet of snow comes. Okay. Right. No problem. All right. So, so antecedents and descendants, this is the whole big process philosophy that everything that happened and that is antecedent get, becomes internally related to the next epochal moment. Okay. Okay. Uh-huh. This happens on 
a moment to moment basis, but across time, across time, yep. matter is internally related to me as life mm-hmm. because that's an internal relation called antecedent. It's, okay. it's this dimension of internal relation. Okay. Okay. Now you see they're asymmetric yep. because it only flows in one direction. Right. Right. Clearly. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's the biggest shoot that a lot of people understand that right. is internally related. All right, okay. Good. Now, <clears throat> then we have this other thing. And I don't know if you, you looked, you t- got a copy of that Carl Gillett book. It's excellent. I didn't um, because I got to get down to the university and, and because it's a hundred yeah. bucks. I have to, yeah. I do what they have it at the university, but I yeah. haven't, uh, I haven't gone down there and get it. I'm excited about it. Yeah. It so he well. has a lot more detail. He's one mm-hmm. of these books that is extremely precise. Good. Um, and it'll solve a lot of questions. I'm not going to try to solve them, but the, the, the one, two, the third type of, just for people listening, in case so, it's a it's a formal academic book on reductionism and emergence, and getting into the weeds from philosophy and science on those concepts and their interrelation. Yeah, because we want you, Greg, to come up with a robust definition of emergence. Right. Okay. So, um, okay. So um, the third ver- topology of. <clears throat> Internal relations are what I call, I call, compositional internal relations. Uh, Gillett calls them realizers. So my cells realize my, uh, my cells realize my subjectivity or my cells realize my perception. Okay. The cells are compositionally internally related to me. Okay. This is different, right? Because ingression, you're not compositionally internally related to me. Antecedents, they're no longer around. But you notice that what becomes compositionally internally related to me as realizers comes from this apocal movement because the cells at a metaphysical level become, you know, matter at a metaphysical level becomes epochally eternally internally related to life uh-huh. and then at a compositional level if i take myself as a focal individual those categories are no longer categories the actual compositional realizers in okay. myself okay, okay. Uh-huh. and uh yeah so Another thing to notice that and, and uh, would we be able to go down an ontologically layered hierarchy on these compositional realizers? Okay. Yeah. So, so what Carl Gillett is going to talk about, which is extremely interesting, is this thing called um uh the whole the whole game in is in having a, a philosophy that grounds uh the vertical stratification of reality. Uh-huh. Okay, and so there's a hundred of them, and he he shows that a couple of them are useful but not very good. A couple of them are not useful, and then he has two, um, which he thinks um, are is the future of this stuff. So um, we're we're talking about we have this intuition that reality is stratified. There's a sense of vertical stratification. How do we account for the features, factors, and properties? that make them go in one direction and not the other. Mm. That is what that discipline is about. Okay. So 
Um, now, it's important to know these are all very intuitive um, things um, that once you hear them, it's uh, they're obvious. But it's obvious that as a category, all of matter is internally related to life. Mm-hmm. But as a compositional, only those that matter or those cells that are entrained in me in a certain way are internally related to me, Uh right? Not all cellular Uh categories are internally related to me. Uh Um, So one is kind of thinking of God as a compound individual, all these things are compositionally stratified in God, but only some of them are compositionally stratified in me. Okay. Okay? All right. Uh So these are all um, very uh, intuitive. And then I'm just going to show you a picture that uh, I have this cool camera trick I can do here. Um, I have to turn this around. So what's interesting here is that we just talked about external a- actions. Okay, that and, is uh, reversed on my screen, but I'll I think I can follow it. And I can I can change this because uh, I think my I've, I got to do this. All right. Well, I can see antecedents. And, okay, well, that is a little easier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but okay. Okay, so here is don't don't. This is just the middle. Don't. Okay. Not, we didn't do that yet. So someone, whatever the focal individual is, mm-hmm. has external actions. Yeah. There's ingression to internal actions. Okay. There's also an apocal moment from moment yep. to moment where the antecedents Good. become internally related. So this is this is this whole thing moving through okay. apocal change at the individual level. Sure. Who knows what the moments are? And then these are the compositional internal relations that realize yep. this higher compound individual. Good. And we know that they are a version. They recapitulate this antecedent thing. Uh-huh. Right yep. now. But what are these things? If we take one of these things, like a cell to be a focal individual, we see the exact same thing. Right. Again. Within it. Okay. And so again, a little fractal. And again. Uh-huh. And again. And again. Yeah. Okay? okay. It's a fractal stack. Right. Yep. Exactly. So this accounts for the rich entanglement because of all these. There's it's a multi-dimensional network of relations Good. Yeah. that are both epochal and individual and across different scales. Now, an in- interesting question in this is if the human is the focal individual, do a bunch of humans, uh-huh. not necessarily all humans, because this is th- th- so we have two questions. This is a bunch of cells, not all mm-hmm. cells, yep. becoming compositionally related to the human. Yep. Now, do a bunch of humans ever become compositionally related to a, another compound individual? Yep. Um, or is it, o- I would argue, it's only possible that humans as a category will one day be compositionally related to something else. I don't believe society, I don't believe the egregore is compositionally uh, realized by people. But now we have actually, as we define these things, we can have an actual argument of why we think that's true or not true. One of the things that happens is to be compositionally internally related, you have to occupy the same space-time inertial frame, and all people don't. 
but all people on the planet do. So the planet may be on and on. So anyways, now the other thing I'm going to say, so now you can see, I think I said it already, this. Uh, let me ask you real quick, just yeah. in terms of getting a, so what about, uh, would ant colonies or any of the, any organism uh, that we are aware of be compositionally related? And then this gets into the whole issue of what's an individual within biology is actually a pretty. This is really good for Michael Levin's work. Okay, yep. according to Hartshorn, an ant colony is not a compositional individual, okay. but they have all these acts of ingression. Okay. So they're almost like one mind, one subjectivity. Huh. Um, okay. But Hartshorn doesn't think a tree is a compositional individual either for similar reasons. It has to, but we don't want to go into the weeds, but, but, okay. but this anyway, is, yes, this, this is where these of, are the kinds of things you'd want to specify or, or these, raise questions right. Okay. But if you understand all these things, you can have a very precise conversation around that. Agreed. Right. Agreed. And, 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 only, and by uh, the way, this is a very, when I do my behavioral metaphysics, that's a, that is in essence, uh, the graph that I have where the circle is the entity and then the question across time and then it's action, you know, uh, yeah. the external interrelation. And then you nest that in a field of relations across time. Yeah. Uh, and it with, and then there's nesting within and then nest, you know, between. So yeah. uh, I'm tracking that pretty clear. Exactly. Okay. The only other thing I want to show is that, the, and I, we've said it again, I'm just going to highlight it, that this, this line is apocal change and it's discontinuous. And this line the, is evolutionary change, and it's continuous. Okay. So now we have a way to uh, met, have a metaphysics of why things seem to be both discontinuous and continuous at the same time, which is a, always one of these questions in our uh, our uh, in our sites. Okay. Okay. So that's. I mean, there's more, but let's let's talk about how that might be interesting to you or or other questions yeah well I actually it was that was very interesting um let's uh, i came in with the frame because you made this reference of so the the, the uh, topology of process relations i think you mentioned four i just want to make sure then if i did, did we so uh did we capture the four yeah um, we have the ingression okay. Mm -hmm. We have the antecedent and descendants. Okay. We have the compositional internal relations. Okay. And then we have uh, the relations. Um, so the compositional internal relations is the focal individual down the stack. And then okay. the question of the focal individual into a higher compound individual. Mm -hmm. If you're, so it's up the stack. Okay. That would be the fourth. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Yeah. And these questions of whether society is up the stack from people as yep. a compound individual. Okay. Um, um, yeah. Sweet. Yeah, no, I mean, a, a lot of that seems, uh, you know, at the basic level, be really interesting to get into the weeds, but uh, I'm not sure that, like I said, that's, I'm glad we didn't. Um, okay. So where, where would we want to go in relationship to this? What, uh, what, well, what would be helpful? Look, yeah. Let's look at this question of reductionism. Okay. Um, so Carl Gillett, with this notion of compositional internal relations, Carl Gillett argues that even the people who argue against uh, scientific reductionists are compositional reductionists anyways. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, now 
when you're a compositional, compositional, um, compositionally internal relations is not a causal framework. My cells don't cause me to do anything. Okay. My nothing, nothing in this composition causes me to do anything. So if you're a compositionally compositional reductionist, or if you want to add the term compositionally internally related reductionist, it doesn't mean that there's determination down the stack. That okay. solves that problem. Okay. Um, so it's that difference between okay, so here's here's how I say it. So a table, you could say a table is made of wood. Okay. And this would be incorrect from a process or relational, a pro, from the process relation, I would say a table is made with wood. Uh. And then there's all kinds of things that are left out, like with wood and the machine and the intellectual uh, skill of the carpenter and the and, the and, the and, the and. And a, a substance reductionist doesn't have a placeholder for all the ands. Okay. Whereas when I say a table is made with wood, uh -huh. then, and what else? Well, you, you have to basically derive the entire universe to really answer those questions, uh -huh. right? Because the wood is made from a tree and the tree grew because of geological time sure. and then on the life on the earth. Right. And that's really what a table is made of. Uh -huh. The table is made of stardust. But it's made with wood. And this is something that gets that reminds you that you're not talking about um, any kind of cause causation from wood to the table. Or you know, you you're 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 in a whole new territory when you're talking about compositional reductionism. Um and um um, that really, that's reminding me a little bit of Aristotle's four causes. Um, I don't know if that's just a loose yeah, association. Yeah, uh, it does because there's something. Whereas the you know there's the one cause was is the carpenter's intention to make it, uh -huh. but it doesn't. It's it sounds just like it, but it's just a way to understand why um, that compositional reductionism isn't scientific fundamentalism or scientific physicalism. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. I I almost went there too, and then I realized it was just not really the same uh, okay. purpose. Um, another thing that is interesting that I don't I'm not prepared to argue, but would be great to talk about is this notion of downward causation and macresis. Um, so, so the question is that I mean, from a strictly Hartshorn process relational view, there is no downward causation. And I'll give you the very strange uh, example he gives. Um, so, you know, downward causation means the comp compositional inter internal, I'm just going to say compositional realizers. Yeah, that's fine. The compositional realizers, um, they get a certain a certain level of coherence so that they have propensities, properties, and powers that they would not otherwise have. Okay. So carbon atoms under certain condi conditions and circumstances become coherently aligned in a way such that they have 
the hardness of a diamond and the power of a diamond. Okay. Okay. That's Mm -hmm. the first step. Okay. Um, But those are not, this is where it gets into the weeds. Those properties, propensities and powers are called, are not uh, what's called productive powers because they, to be hard the dot the carbon doesn't have to do more work yep okay okay um, yep but if there's a scenario in which my cells have get coherent and differentiate and do a lot of things such that they give me at the focal level individual productive powers that they don't have mm-hmm like I get up and walk across the room. Right. Okay. I can do work. Productive powers means um, exchanging energy against the entropic gradient. Lovely. Okay. Okay. Yep. So if that is the case, that the realizers give productive powers at a higher level, then you would say there's downward causation. Okay. Okay. Um. And I'm just sharing all this is because we th- th- this is good language for understanding what we're talking about. Uh-huh. And now I'll tell you something really hard, really weird that Hartshorn said that okay. I read over and over and over until I understood it. And the problem is the damn subject object thing keeps coming in your mind. Okay. Uh-huh. So Hartshorn said he solved the hard problem of consciousness. Of course, a lot of people said that. Uh, and this is what he said. So here I am. I'm a compound individual, and I'm looking at a tree. Okay. I have the experience of looking at a tree. I have the qualia that I am looking at a tree. Okay. But he said, um, um, and then there's this, you know, time old, old question of how can the qualia of looking at a tree, which is one substance, uh, be triggered by the tree, which is objective. OK, so so what he says is so I op- so basically it's like this. I'll give you the simple metaphor. It's basically like this is oversimplifying, but it'll help us get situated. It's basically like my. Cells are compositionally realized a new organ of perception. It's like a periscope, right? It's like, or it's like we can't see, a hundred people can't see over a mountain. So they do one of these pyramids. They stand on each other. Uh They compositionally organize a new organ of perception. Okay. So he would argue that the individual doesn't have any more powers than, than those powers that are compositionally realized, but what the individual has is a new organ of perception, which is like a cognitive light cone. Okay. Okay. So my cells can't see the tree. Uh They organize in such a way that here's their periscope. It gets information that they can't enjoy Uh in concert or by themselves. Uh And what seeing the tree is, is that the light and stuff is is not influencing me because subjectivity is an abstraction, but is influencing those realizers that are realizing me and it okay. changes them. Okay. And what Hartshorn says 
the I, the me, is not prehending the tree. It's okay. prehending the changes of its own body. Okay. And that prehension is a feeling. You can feel what your body is doing. Right. And that all perception is a sensation of your own body. Mm-hmm. And that's how he solves the mind-body problem. You're not prehending the trees. And this is very big because I couldn't understand, like, well, if the person's prehending the tree, then that's just subject-object. And then I finally get it. Now, the person, prehension is never external. You're mm-hmm. always prehending right. your internal relations. Okay. So it's always substance to substance. So in this case, there's no downward causation. There's just these this typology, antecedents and descendants. In term, the tree is ingressed into me because it directly affects my cells, which are compositionally internally related to me, which changes my subjectivity in a way that I see the tree. So this is how strange uh, the, the strange uh, uh, consequences of really getting into a process relational view. Okay. Um, so, so f- there's a lot there that I, that resonates. So um, when I open my eyes and see the tree, right. Um, the, there is one way to think about that, or I would think about that is there, you know, there's a neurobiological orchestra Right. Um, that what's actually happening, what I experience as myself is actually it's a collection of a neurobiological orchestra that is attending to a particular form that has some potential that then gives rise to an appearance that has some potential to the thing outside. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Yeah. So, you know, and here, of course, I agree with you, but here, of course, the word appearance is a little difficult because we've uh, got the subject object, but I understand that it's the same. Right. So, right. So we can worry about that, but, but, but so, so, right. So I guess, so the, the first thing is right. I mean, is that, that's what, so at one level, the, the substance of my experience for me always at some level is uh, you know, compositionally, uh-huh. uh, the interactions of my cells. Yes. Okay. Right. So that makes you a compositional reductionist. Right. <laughs> okay. Now here is where it gets weird. All right. Right. Because I'm still, I, I lean towards a particular brand of top-down causation, which we can talk about. At least I would label the 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 if you look at the diagram of the tree of knowledge and I saw I did look into Gillett some and he's got a diagram of somebody else of a classic sort of um you know the the classic frame for a kind of top down causation which basically is the cones which then you know which yeah. emerge and evolve but have constraints and then the whole is shifting and there are causal ontological relationships of the whole that are shifting that are emergent and there are particular kinds of them that are, uh, you know, really non-reducible. And we can talk about what I would mean by that. So, yeah, Gillett's going to agree with you. He calls that his favorite version of stratified verticality is mutualism, which there is some, the realizers realize a power that then has macretic, he says, because it's not, again, because it's not determinative or constraints is a word, governing constraints. So he, he, he's, He's going to end up uh, 
favoring favoring that in that book. So um, on your table, I think you said no to that. Did I catch you correct. saying no to that? No, because, God. Of, because of what I just <laughs> said, like what I just talked about, the person is not even seeing the tree. The per, OK, so let's go into this. I, I'm not you know, I'm just trying to no, well, give you an alternative <laughs> world without psych, psychedelics. OK, hey, I did um, mushrooms a little while ago when I was in Brazil. We should chat. It was, it was super cool. I hadn't done it in 27 years. Oh, um, yeah. Did because you get, they're free. You can uh, really? uh, you can order them. Oh, on yeah. the mail. We went to Mexico. They come around. They picked it out of the. So anyway, that's cool. a whole nother story. But that was uh, that's cool to see what my cells, you know, certainly changed a little bit of the dance my cells were participating in. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, like I know on LSD, you can really start to feel your your cells. Like, like I remember holding a glass and I could feel the perfect contrapunctual relation between the thumb and the hands that neither crushed the glass or dropped it. And I and I could I thought that was, you know, I was like, oh, it's like a miracle. <laughs> Right. I was I was really aware. So, you know, because I have a little knowledge of uh, perception and edge detectors and yeah. we have a we have a, a, a counter, which is like a granite countertop. OK, it's a black. It's gray, well, black, white granite countertop. Uh, but on shrooms, OK, all of those little edges, you know, you do if you watch one of the, um, yeah. you know, perceptual things, all of a sudden they come alive. Uh, because the edge detectors, whatever they're yes. doing, they get thrown off. And so now the edges are no longer stationary. They're detecting them as movement. And they also filled them with a vibrant color. Yeah. So this thing got a three-dimensional, like it was like somebody turned on a switch and the thing was just flowing uh, with three-dimensional rainbows through uh, this granite countertop. That was yeah. that was cool tracking my perceptual system to impute the movement in that was really striking. I would say this is the major tragedy of modern man is we don't perceive a tiny fraction of what is real. And when you start to perceive it, the world is so fucking beautiful. You don't need to consume things. You don't need. Oh my God. I was totally, I had that. Cause actually that was the interesting that you made that term. Uh, Cause that was the word of the day. So beauty. I was, I was just, I wept. And so did Masia. We actually, yeah. we sat in a, we had built our little monastery for you talk that the coloring was just awe-inspiring. I was just taken aback. I just can't believe how fucking beautiful this was. That was the over and over. I said, called my kids. I was like, I am just, I'm just drenched in beauty. It was, it was really fascinating. So, you know, now you know a little bit about me because I used to be in complete despair because I was saying, what could I possibly say to make people love the world more when it's so fucking beautiful? And then I realized, People couldn't see it. Mm -hmm. Like when I was a kid, I'm like, they fucking can't see it. Yeah. And we have this, this, you know, I have this translation of Pettit's translation of Mitham speaking of certainty. And the end of it goes, let it be a beacon that illuminates your way. Everything seen perfectly is loved. And don't, to me, it's 99.9% .9 of our problem is we just don't use our eyes and ears. We don't use our sense organs. I love that. And um, I love that. Um, I, I work with a philosopher, Rob Scott, and, and he, he essentially has this line also, this line of thought. Um, and, and, and we're, it's absolutely right. It's just, we have, 
the, the and the abstractions that we and the and the mental modeling that we fucking engage in and the possibilities and the amount of space we live in in the past and in the future relative to the actual engagement with the sensory motor loop in the now i mean it's just amazing uh and then when you actually know how to do that and then connect allow yourself or, or i wonder what it is that, like is, is it'd be if we can figure out that actually it, it is the socialization process that shifts your relationship to that and that's available to experience the beauty like we're built to feel the beauty and if we socialize in the right way do you think that? Do you think that if we socialize in the right way, then collectively um, we would live much more connected to the sensory motor loop beauty of, of being in the world? Yeah, but I think that's a big if because oh, right. we live in simulations, right? right. We just, I mean, so let's talk about ingression. I mean, what the fuck are we doing here? Um, I think, think, I mean, there's still a place for philosophy. It's a philosophy that sings the beauty that you see. And this is kind of one of the things that I hope, yeah. But, you know, my work with horses and stuff is much more direct results for that that kind of hope. Right. Um, um, well, we got to get out of the proposition, the proposition tyranny. Yeah. Right. Um, and there's beauty in, in all kinds of things. You know, it's not like that, you know, it's like the objects are beautiful too. And it's not just, just you know, but anyways. Um, yeah, so we're going to dedicate this work to that, that, uh, that intention. Okay. So now let's follow Hartshorn's kind of crazy. I mean, he, it doesn't sound crazy when he's talking about it because he's a systematic analytic, systematic metaphysician, you know, mm -hmm. um, but when you start to really let it in what he's saying, it's similar to being on mushrooms, that there's just this direct relationship participation of my body with the tree. And as a consequence, I enjoy this, this beauty. Mm. Um, it's almost a byproduct of something that is, yeah. Um, so there's a little bit of that in Hartshorn. Um, in this text, he he he's he's not as uh, poetic as that. But now, if what happens is this is where it gets interesting, I think, because if you trace this down, so so you know, so my cells are realizing something and the cells are being realized by the molecules and the molecules are being realized. When you get to what is the bottom thing, oh. it doesn't end. It becomes recursive because the bottom thing is realized by the very first antecedent, which is the latent potential, which is God. You can't crash. You see what I'm saying? Because now you go down the compositional terminal relations, it's realized, and you see it's tracking the antecedents. And then when it gets down to the bottom, it is the apocal change. It is the singularity emanating this fourfold topology. And okay. something, this is kind of a religious, this is a kind of a religious thing. Um, but as as you can see, you it, following this compositional reduction, you can't get to the bottom. You come out. Uh, you come out at the top. 
So um, <clears throat> does that make sense? I know it's hard. The come out at the top. Um, like, okay, I'll put it in my language, okay? Um, so at least this is a parallel, all right? So one of the uh, mantras in uh, you talk is, I am an energy information singularity. Okay. And, and this is a one many then layering. And then the argument ultimately is underneath matter is an energy information implicate order to borrow a bone turn, although I'm not a full fledged bohemian. Um, but it, the, the, the basic following of materialism into physicalism into quantum fields back into basically, I argue that the best descriptor. Uh, if we're going to orient, and I'm a much more process than substance, but if we just say, okay, what's the simple substance ontology? Well, there's this singular super force that gets differentiated. Okay. And then we're patterns in that. All right. And then, and then ultimately, as I'm going down, I am, I am, I am a differentiated conglomerate of that set of relations. Yeah. So I discovered your phrase when I was working with this, because when we talk about compositionally, internally related realizers, one of the things that makes them coherent is a kind of communication or they're processing information coherently. Mm -hmm. That's part of how we can explain why yep. do they line up to become my subjectivity? Why do the internal relations line up? such there's a hierarchy of internal relations, one of which becomes the internal relation I experience as my subjectivity. And it does, um, What some of the languaging around that is exactly yours, that there's this hierarchical information processing that's also adding up like this. And, and information processing, you could say communication, then, then the process philosophers would say, well, communication are cells prehending each other, and then they get back into their own language. But yes, so, um, so um, yes. So um, now we have to go to the first amoeba, and then I'll draw you another picture. <laughs> okay. Okay. So when we think of the antecedent to the descendant line, um, we can think of the first amoeba. Okay. So I'll ask people, anyone, everybody loves this question. Is the first amoeba still around? And everyone will say, yes, kind of, but no, kind of, right? Right. It's everyone there and it's not there. I heard it's one there and It's not there. Exactly. Okay. So what we can say, we can say a couple of things. Um, the amoeba is fully metabolized by into its descendants, right? The first amoeba gets fully metabolized into its descendants. Now with different animals and different forms, even uh, with, with uh, uh, elemental particle decay, we could say they're being metabolized by their descendants, by their particle nature, whatever. So this seems to be along this apocal axis, you have this thing that things get metabolized by the descendants. When we get to more complex life form, we don't, they don't, we don't get fully metabolized by a descendants all at once. But in reality, if you've ever had kids, you can feel that part of your life force is exactly doing that. 
And then we get like the octopus who lives around kind of for a couple hours and then dies. And so depending upon how long it takes, the, the mountain is becoming fully metabolized. The proton decays in, I think, in 10 to the 12th times the age of our universe. It's, it's likely that that's its half-life. Um, so this is what's happening along, along that line. <clears throat> okay. Another way to say that is, oh, and another thing that's important is that even though the amoeba divides 100 million times, today's amoebas are not 100 millionth the size of the original amoeba. So it's division without diminishment. This oh. is a cool thing too, okay? So... <clears throat> Uh, what process relations would say is that the amoebas, the descendants, we said this already, are internally related to the first amoeba. And that's why it's there and not there at the same time. Okay. So now we have God, which is not, he doesn't, it doesn't exist yet, right? It's sub, sub-level existence. We could say it's symmetrical, um, so the matter and the antimatter cancel each out. There, there's there's not enough differentiation for it to exist. Um, and wait, are what, we are we jump back to like Big Bang? Or, yeah, Big Bang. Okay. Prior to the Big Bang, right? We okay. just say there's God because that's how we're right. going to talk. I'm going to say it yep. in a different way soon. Mm-hmm. Um, is, would you say this is similar to Spinoza's sort of uh, God? Would, would you say it that? might be? I get Spinoza and Leibniz mixed up. Okay, because. I'm Every not. Time I've read it, for, like for me, basically, right? It, it's it's both nature and more than nature. It's it's nature and nature's potential. Um, for me, that's uh, what Spinoza's yes, that's God why, would be. That's why there's say. an LP here because in the middle of all this is something called latent potential. God is latent potential. Okay, so since you said that, we'll start there. So before existence, before time, space, or even existence, our minds are epistemically constrained to start somewhere. So we're going to start somewhere. And what I'm going to start with is Pierce's concept of firstness. Now, what's very interesting is firstness as a metaphysical concept is extremely interesting because it doesn't, like you would never say, if you ran around the track by yourself, you would never say, I was first. Firstness implies that secondness is latent. Okay. But if secondness never arises, uh-huh. you would never have firstness. Good. Okay. Okay. So they're asymmetrically mutually dependent. Love it. And so so um it turns out that secondness, that firstness is internally related to secondness, which means Potential God is internally related to latency. Okay. So God can't have powers uh-huh. if it's there's not something asymmetrical about those powers, and that's called latency. Okay. Okay. Now this is what I def- define all selves as. All selves are late are, are latent potentials, and then this ties into complex potential states. But so God is a latent potential, and uh-huh. after above a certain threshold of asymmetry, because they're asymmetrically related, uh-huh. there's something happens. And now here's one of the last concepts that um, we need in my story. 
all these books, all, you know, theoretical physicists, this is, they say the same thing. There's a singularity and then there's symmetry breaking. And um, the problem with um, physicists is that their whole entire edifice is predicated on supersymmetry. So they can, as they trace back and back and back, they're always looking for something that completes the symmetry. Uh And when the symmetry is completed, that's what it was before the Big Bang. Uh Process philosophy would say, that's your epistemic constraint. That's your obstacle for creative novel, for creative thinking, Uh because there's no supersymmetry in, in, um, in process philosophy. So now, so, but we do have this notion of latent potential. It's not supersymmetry because it doesn't exist in process philosophy. And then um, something happens. Now, mostly what we look for when people are doing theoretical physics or theoretical metaphysics is we look at when something happens, it's a bifurcation event. And one of the big things that I realized is that this is an epistemic constraint that we have to get rid of. There's no reason to believe that once something happened, a billion things could have happened at the same time. Okay. So we call that instead of bifurcation, we call that exfurcation where X stands for a multiple, multiple greater than two. Okay. Okay. So latent potential God is only internally related to himself itself. See, I'm a good Catholic, I always say himself. <laughs> right? So, uh, and then something happens, and you get this effluvience of we don't know what. Uh-huh. Um, but when you look back in time, retrospectively, you can only see a certain amount of the pe- texture. It's like looking, it's like when we look back in time, it's like looking with x-ray visions. We don't see the tissues. We only see the bones. Okay. So we'll come up with something like a fourfold gradient in which, so all experience then unfolds with this fourfold gradient that I just talked about. But in reality, there's so much that could be in between these things mm-hmm. that through this lens, we do not see. Okay. It could be, um, and so some people would say that's dark matter and dark energy. It's in between the things we can see. Mm-hmm. So this is another big um, metaphysical principle in the cosmology, Whitehead's cosmology, is that there is this background field of potentials, latent potentials. They're not in God anymore because they're not just stuck in the internal relationships mm-hmm. of God, but they're there and they subsist in the background, um, which... Um, and they subsist, and um, as far as we know, they are the, what I call a protension. They have a propensity to follow this fourfold gradient array, but there's no reason to believe that there aren't other kind of strong um, metaphysical pr- principles that we can't think of because we haven't bumped bumped into the problem that makes us think harder. Um, So now we're going to get to what, so when you go further and further down in compositional uh, relations, the realizers, yeah, it's like you get to the information 
Um, but basically you get to, at bottom, just this notion of latent potentials that that is God in the past or what is latent in the future. That's wow. what's underneath. That's what everything is fundamentally composed of in the beginning uh -huh. and in the unfolding future. Okay. So I call it the once and future God, latent potential, oh. Pierce's firstness. Oh. <laughs> so that's a, a story okay. that's um, cupped together for someone to play with. It's not right. Not a well. Not okay. A, well, let me let me track. Um, okay. So so for me, I the, well I'll, I'll just so so metaphorically or or uh mythologically and i use that in the in the uh, positive meaning of sense mythologically for me um god is both the this um substance and potential and it's also the then and i have different depictions of then then it's a particular kind of potential to relate to us like the elephant sun god is the is then a kind of potential uh, to realize, like that's a, akin to uh, Tillich's ultimate concern. Um, so I would anything when. So for me, when I'm using the word God, I'm I'm um, generally using it in relationship to the, what we are projecting and relating to um, in, in particular ways. And there is the down and back, which then you know sort of is related to you know if we, if we use a physical term, energy. Um, but then, but then it, it, I want to network it and provide it with meaning and then have it grow and be alive and things like that. So then that's where the concept of God. And then there's also uh, the aspirational God that gives us a divine double and, and moves us and other kinds of things. Uh, this may take us, and I don't want to go too far afield, but it just, that's what's activating in me. And I'm just curious where any of that lands for you yeah. or relates to. So I would say that the God that I describe is an ontological notion. Okay. It's ontologically real. And I would say that the there's many types of gods that humans creatively, um, like there's psychological gods, mm -hmm. there's aspirational gods, but these are, these are in, these are human um, in the in in the linguistic representation of humans. Mm -hmm. um, so when I experience God as a mythopoetic, I'm experiencing the mythopoetics. Yep. That is God. Okay. Whereas yep. when I try to uh, share something like this. I'm sharing something that reflects something that I deeply realize in my own experience about experience and what I feel from my own spiritual realization, um, what God is. Okay. Versus, um, you know, I can feel when I, you know, I can and story this. Right. Like here's a story, all right? So this is powerful story, but I don't use it because it's too unstory. The God the Father is the latent potential. In the in Catholic religion, you have Christ. He becomes metabolized 
uh-huh. and God is, and, and when he dies, he says, why have you abandoned me? It is finished, which means that God, the father is completely metabolized in creation. That's what it means. And then you have Jesus is, but Jesus is, you know, an internal related to God, as he told everybody else was. And then you have, after Jesus dies, um, the Holy Spirit, which is merely the internal relations that are in every every aspect of creation, because just like the first amoeba, everyone is internally related to the original latent potential. So, but I could tell that it's very mythopoetic, mm-hmm. but I think I can feel myself the other thing, the metaphysics is what I've been trying to work out. Like, what is it that I experience when I have right. these direct experiences? Mm-hmm. And then the other thing I experience as, as and storing it. Yes. Okay. So I'm in the same place, I think. Uh, so certainly the mythos, the elephant sun gods, uh, it falls under mythos. It's, it's about organizing our storied narrative and reflecting back. And it's very much the God we create that we're projecting. It's got particular ontological characteristics, like, for example, loving goodness, truth, and beauty, you know, the wisdom traditions or whatever. I think I can track that into negantropic organizing processes if we say, well, there's actually a deep pattern. It's, it's, you know, the God has these projections because of deep complex adaptive potential networks in many ways it wouldn't there there are reasons why it's why there's so much universality in this kind of architectural projection Um, but there's there's a limitation in mind like for example because god gets completely metabolized in his creation and it's just internal relations mm -hmm. from there on i can't turn around and have a dialogue with god right right so this dialogue with what i am right right but well, yeah, is God different than sort of than the essential constitutive relations of the universe? I mean, is God different from that? Yes and no, in the same way that yeah. <laughs> okay, but but okay. yeah, no, yes, no, in the same way that the amoeba is still there, and yes, in the, in the way okay. that the amoeba. Okay, but, yeah, no, I but, think yeah, um, I think that people who have encounters with God as external. I think they're just running simulations. Okay. That's why mine is a fierce national naturalism, not a transcendent one. Now, there is trans, you could say there's transcendence because the antecedents are fully metabolized and they transcend themselves and stuff like that, but not the way most people think of transcendence. I think it's just too abstract for me. Okay. Um there are a lot of different directions we could go. No, I'm just I saying think. this is a real limitation of what I'm saying that, 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 and you know, you guys were saying it the other day, like, like, like something like you can't, you can't turn around and, and be with that. You have, you know, you, you have to, you are that something like that. It's mm-hmm. more like, it's more like that. You mm-hmm. are all of a sudden you realize that you can't turn around and be in a relation with God. You can turn around and be in a relation with other people and let the difference ingress into you so that like this is this is the metaphor. Little by little, you march back up huh. into God, which I think is is doesn't actually happen, but um 
for me, it's in this apocal direction. It's not, you know, it's God is original um, and fully metabolized. But um, that's nothing. It's something to debate about. It's just something to disclose about your own uh, experience. How close would you say that is to Whitehead's conception of God? Not at all, because okay. when I read Whitehead, I you know process and reality, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then in the end, he has a super subject, which is exter- is <clears throat> now gets very complex. But the super subject is more like an and he has eternal. The super subject has eternal objects, and this gets to be like to me. He painted this whole picture, and then he. Over here on this side, he said, well, then at a different level, it's all the things about religion that you used to say that I deconstructed. So um, um, most of my uh, allegiance is to Hartshorn, who talked, he wrote a book like Omnipotence and Other Mistakes, Theological Mistakes, that God is not a So I'm much more closer to Hartshorn, and then I go further, you know, even even violate some of Hartshorn's constraints. So, um, I, so so in that sense, I, when when Whitehead talks about science uh, and ideas and metaphysics, I'm very close to him. When he talks about process and reality, and he gets into the super subject, um, yeah, I just see, I just think if it's it's like a bait and switch, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just so you know that it's not at all. Do you do you see us having different uh, pictures of causality that we should dive into? I think you and I are very similar. Um, I mean, we always end up getting very close. Um, but my yeah, my you know, so I, I just think. I don't really have an argument. I mean, I guess what we tidied up is something I said that first time that um, compositional relations with are you know is like reductionism, but not like reductionism. So we don't have to have an argument with reductionism, and we're not. If we look at it from that lens, we don't have to be worried that at a certain level we have Newtonian causality. At a certain level, it's convenient to use Newtonian uh-huh. causality, but because of this, the stack is really all these very complex compositional relations. Um, so um, so things are made with those components, but uh-huh. not made of them. Uh-huh. And once you say that, you'd have to derive the whole causal linkages of the whole entire universe and then admit that there's they were all contingent anyways. Uh-huh. So that's just a way for you not to have to go from uh, free people to determined matter to free quantum, you know, it's, yeah. it, it's much, it's more consistent, but I think that's kind of your sense of it anyways. It's just um, tidying up like a bridge language or something. Right. Um, okay. I still, you know, I, 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 you know, so um My, you know, so the the reason why I'm, I have a fiercer now, I, I mean, I'm willing to look at macresis and downward causation. It's very tricky. Um, but what I'm stubborn about 
Um, okay, so here's another thing. You know, basically, you, you have these intuitions, and some of them you're stubborn about. So you try to um, use that as a constraint to push your thought further, same, same as you. Um, and so I use this thought experiment. Like, here's a thought experiment. Um, so a lot of people, in terms of Western people, when they talk about downward causation, they'll say, um, <clears throat> I get up and walk across the room, and my cells have um, no choice to get up and walk across the room with me, right? So that's downward causation. And I say, well, that hold on. Um, the Earth is traveling around the, the sun and the solar system is traveling through the galaxy. Do I feel like I have no choice but to travel with them? No. So you can't really say that the cells have no choice or are downwardly caused by me because from their reality, that doesn't even exist. It's not a, it's not a, a diminution of their freedom. Oh. Okay. And in fact, the fact that they can walk across the room and sit in the sun is an increasing an increase in their powers. Okay, so once you start talking like that, then you see that things are compositionally stacked, not so that there's got downward causation, but there's upward there's there is a protension, a gradient toward increasing scope of sensation and degrees of freedom, which means things get continually um, uh, list or veer toward the edge of chaos, which of course we know that. Um, so I don't see compositional stacking as a bunch of downward constraints. I don't know why. I mean, it's the argument doesn't make sense to me. It, oh, and another thing is when I do that thought experiment, if I get across, I get up and get across the room, if I'm doing Vipassana, if I'm doing everyday mindfulness, I'm sitting there reading and then I get up, go across the room. It's not clear that it wasn't the homeostatic processes of my cells that made me get up and walk across the room. I don't. So, so like a lot of this downward causation needs to be looked at like, like, uh, you know, most people that would Westerners that would say downward causation, I get up and walk across the room would not say that the earth exerts got downward causation on us because we're flying through the universe. Right. Um, so they can't have it both ways and it needs to be looked at with mm -hmm. more precision. Okay. Well, I look forward to reading that. Uh, I mean, the short answer from you talk is that there is a, the discontinuity and causation happens with novel information processing communication networks. Yeah. Um, and then there are those then, which means oh, that okay. there, this is, yeah. So then there are epistemic framings that cells make and animals make and people make. And it's those epistemic framings that have a new novel causal consequence that move the bacteria or the dog or us in this conversation in different ways. So if I go, hey, Masia, I just had a really cool conversation with Benita, right? Um, I'm now caused by the representation of Benita. Your cells and your atoms aren't causing that, but there is a schematic representation of Benita 
that is having causal impact. And yeah. it is that that then is compositionally constraining me, organizing and orchestrating that structure. And the novel epistemic has novel causal consequence. And so that's what I, that's yeah, really yeah. where I the think we're is. saying the same thing because yeah. when I said it, it, what the purpose is, is so the cells can have a periscope, mm-hmm. increase uh, so the scope of perception. Mm-hmm. Then I would say that uh, communication is a way to increase the scope of perception. I yeah. can, like okay. you say, I can perceive your mind, your imagination directly because mm-hmm. through language. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just keep it extremely simple uh, working at the level of perception and sensation, but we're saying the same thing because yeah. at a certain level of sophistication, communication is an increase in perception in perception. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a new organ of perception. Amen. And and there is a languaging that does allow us to go all the way down at one level. If you go to string theory or whatever, uh, you know, photons are messenger particles from yeah. physicists, and you know, there are ways to hold that uh line throughout the stack. Um, so it's a, I think it's a matter of emphasis or, or languaging, but yeah. yeah, no, I think we're in the same page. Though. Good. I mean, I think, I think this conversation will be useful to people who are interested, who read Whitehead and, and um, <laughs> it sounds so easy. I work so hard to figure it out. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, this is certainly um, I find a lot of resonance here. I mean, uh, basically, the, the the deconstruction of the concept of behavior was central for you talk. Um, that's got a lot of resonance. The organization that you laid out gave me some new vocabulary. I certainly agree with the compositional. Uh, yeah, my you'll friend, love the uh, Gillett book. Yeah, I look forward to the Gillett book and delineating my I need uh, a little more academic review on uh, the latest in emergence and reduction in philosophy of science. Uh, so that'd be a great place to start there. All right. Well, last general question. Then we guys, we just sort of wrap up. All right, Bonnie. It was so. Yeah. How are we feeling our way forward? <laughs> you know, you want to give some thoughts for anybody who's listening uh, as we um, sort of like what? What fucking relevant? Does this have any relevance to what we're doing? Has any relevance for feeling our way forward? I want to see what Matt has to say about this because he's much more of a whiteheadian and showing uh, take than I am, uh, and. Um, Right. Well, certainly we'll share this with him. Yeah. 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 And 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 then I think you know um, uh, I don't know what the ramifications are. You know, I don't really have. I don't really. I thought I did, but I don't really have a bone to pick. I just have a song to sing. So I'm trying to figure out, like, you know, whose metaphysics am I crushing here? And I can't figure out whose metaphysics I'm crushing here. I did say in my my article that I'm writing, my essay, that, um, you know, process philosophy was born in the time of relativity and quantum theory. And they were were respectful of the science and they were trying to make sense out of it. And process philosophy now is is, uh, very skeptical of scientists. And I think um, that that's a shame. And I think that a lot of uh, scientists working at the edges, like the people we watch, Michael Levin and Chris Fields and David Watson and stuff, um, they're they're um, addressing these kind of theoretical horizons 
and uh, process philosophers are comfortable with that. And so I think that's your project. It's my project. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm much more comfortable uh, with, you know, the new sciences are, are, are doing some cool stuff. Uh, they're rewriting the intellectual history of the West. And um, um, they're, they're in need of, of innovative ideas to um, jumpstart them, you know, to ask, like Michael Levin says, if we ask new questions, yep. uh, we'll find new stuff. So I would say that is a bone I'm trying to pick. And it actually is your question with Whitehead. Whitehead and process theology, uh, curiously not Hartshorn, but got started going back into some kind of, you know, looks more like Christianity and spirit and has has lost this this uh, yearning to be consilient with the new sciences of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that. Well, I was listening to your Weavers of Time uh, presentation. Great. Um, and uh, I'm not sure if it came up directly, but uh and and I I'm not sure when it was taking place, but the cognitive light cone, Levin's cognitive light cone, uh, felt uh, very consistent with that structure yeah. um, and the and the way you laid out time there. So I just wanted to make a notion. I thought that was both well done and um, I, I was making that connection. Yeah, yeah. So just yeah. So that's that's cool. I mean, I think that I'm gonna. I, I've got two things. I'm doing this. See, I'm writing this book, um, The Once and Future God, and I want it to be, uh, I don't want it to be metaphysics. Um, but it need I needed to first write down the metaphysics that it actually is based on. Okay. So if people are like, well, what are you talking about? And that and, and then I, when I started writing it down, I had to I had to find more precision in what how I understood it. So that's what this is. I gotcha. And um so what's the but what's then the message of the book if it's not if it's not a metaphysical kind of uh um, treatment? It's a view of spirituality. Um it, hmm. I have a pitch that says the, like the four things it must do. But basically um the purpose of the book is to correct the errors in the religious imagination of fragmentation. The self is whole, nature and humans are whole, the universe is whole. Um, and um, to, so I talk about, and, and, and part of it has to do with um, these relations, you know, because there's discontinuity in the apocal change, but there's, and so that's why I don't like the word emergence. Because even if you use it and you know it's continuous, it 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 gives you the sense of fragmentation. So, hmm. um, you know, I, I I talk about how instead of using the word ingression, ingression in the Once and Future God book is intimacy, because that's what intimacy is. The more intimate oh. you are, the more the other. When we were at the um, cosmoerotic humanism, I, I said you could use the notion of uh, Whitehead's ingression for intimacy. And then love is the willingness mm. to be completely metabolized in your descendants. Mm. So the, the the tone of the book is is that kind of language, mythopoetic. Okay. Um, right. But I just didn't want to create something that wasn't, in my mind, grounded in sure. 
in something that also right, is, that's clear. Mm-hmm. is robust metaphysics, yeah. Lovely. Okay, thank you for the platform. The conversation is even better. I um, deeply enjoy it and, and uh, uh, entertaining <laughs> and um, give me some thoughts to chew on for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the other thing, I guess this is so anything I can say now is already intuited by you. But basically what your you talk stack is, is this asymmetric relations between antecedents and blah, blah, blah. So you can say, yes, this is exactly what it is. It's not a taxonomy, as I accused you of. Uh, um, and uh, you'll love the book. Uh, you'll get a lot of things that are useful for you there. Sweet. Awesome. All right. Well, it's always Next lovely to sync up. You. You better have mushrooms. Oh, well, I'm back in the state, so you know we'll uh, we'll see. (laughs) That'd be glorious. All right, Bonnie. We'll be in touch. Have a good one. Take care. Peace.